Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Promise of the Spirit. All right, so after Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, after he rose again from the dead on the third day, um, he went before his disciples and he said this right here. It's called the Great Commission. Ever heard of it? I think I talk about it almost every week. He said, go. So everybody say the word go. go. Okay, literally in the Greek, present tense, as you are going. So go, therefore. And by the way, whenever you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what's it there for? Okay, so verse 18, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Which, by the way, is another verse which substantiates the deity of Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and everybody say the words, make disciples. Go ahead. And so if you were to corner me and say, Pastor, what's one word to describe your church without blinking, I would say disciple. That's what we're all about. Not leading people in a prayer. You know, they say a little canned prayer and then they live their life however they want to live. No, Jesus didn't say to do that. He said, go and make disciples. What's a disciple? A disciple is a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. Someone who says, I'm in, I'm not casual, I'm committed, I'm devoted, I'm gonna follow Jesus, best way I know how, and they follow him until they breathe their last breath. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and now everybody say the word baptizing, Okay, that's huge. That's a commandment of God. Never ever did Jesus say to sprinkle babies, by the way. That's church tradition. That is not biblical doctrine. Biblical doctrine is when you say, I'm in, I'm devoted, then you go public with your faith through baptism. And the word baptism in the Greek is baptizo, which means to immerse. And so if you're really serious about following Jesus Christ, baptism is the initiation into the church. It's the initiation into Christianity. It's an outward demonstration of the inward work God has already done, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right there on the pages of the New Testament, we see that our God is a triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then he says, teaching. Everybody say the word teaching. Okay, that's important. Thank you for being here on this rainy day to receive the teaching of the word of God. Okay, and so how, um, how many moms are here? You have a baby and you just leave the baby in a corner and go live your life. Does anybody do that on planet Earth? No. You take the baby, you love the baby, you nurture the baby, you feed the baby. Right, you, you, uh, um, you, you make sure the baby has the, the nutrition the baby needs to keep growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. The same thing in the physical realm is true in the spiritual realm. We don't lead somebody to Christ and just leave them alone. Oh good, they said the prayer, they're not going to hell. And so I, I'm okay now. No, you teach them. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. Teaching them to observe how many things Christ has commanded us. Oh, everybody look at me. Teaching them to uh, observe all. How many of you know he wrote all of it? All that 
I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus Christ, after he rose from the dead, said those words to his disciples. In other words, hey guys, I accomplished my mission. I came into the world. I paid for the sins of the world. I rose again the third day. I accomplished my mission. Now it's time for you to accomplish your mission. What's that, Lord? Make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations. That's what I want you to do. And so fulfilling the Great Commission would be such a huge Monumental, enormous task. How in the world could just a handful of disciples ever pull this off? Well, the answer to that question is in the book that we're about to study this year in 2019. The book of Acts shows us how the disciples fulfilled the great commission, literally taking the gospel, the message, the good news of Jesus from Jerusalem all the way around the Mediterranean basin to the city of Rome in just 30 years. And so many of the extant Greek copies that we have of this book name it the Acts of the Apostles. And even though the apostles were very active in this book, ladies and gentlemen, we cannot forget who was the driving force behind them. And that's the Holy Spirit. You see, just like a powerful wind moves a sailboat across the sea. So the Holy Spirit of God moved these men and women across the Roman Empire. The Spirit of God filled their sails, so to speak. He empowered them. Well, first, the first thing he did is regenerate them. And then he indwelt them. And then he empowered them. And then he blessed them. And there's amazing results that we're gonna see this year as we get into this book. Why? the Holy Spirit. And so based upon the activity of the Holy Spirit in Acts, some have proposed an alternative title to the book. And so not the Acts of the, whole, of the um, Apostles, but the Acts of who? The Holy Spirit. I think that's a good and appropriate title for the book we're about to study. This book, this book of Acts, is all about the Holy Spirit. Jesus went up and who came down? Holy Spirit came down and everything changed. The book of Acts is all about the amazing work of the Spirit as he birthed the church and then built the church and then blessed the church and then spread the church all across the Roman Empire, again, from Jerusalem all the way to Rome in 30 years, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of new disciples new followers of Jesus Christ. And so, wow, this is an exciting book. And I'm personally excited as we think deeply here in this local church about the Holy Spirit, about his role in our life, about his role in this church. What could God do in our church in 2019? And so, I heard someone say, build a school. <laughs> I like that, whoever said that. That's that's. That's good, that's part of the Great Commission, right? Making disciples? Why don't we make disciples of a lot of these little kids so they can grow up um, and, and impact the next generation for Jesus Christ, right? That's good. And so the alternative title, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, but who's the author? Who wrote this book? 
If you're taking notes, the author is Dr. Luke, who was a Gentile. And so after the Apostle Paul, some of you I know, I know are new to the Bible and you're like, who's that? Okay, so Saul is his Hebrew name. He was a Pharisee. He hated Jesus. He persecuted the church. And so Jesus, how many of you are thankful for his love and grace, revealed himself to Saul. And Saul had a life-changing encounter. And now we know Paul, his Greek name, becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. And so when Paul started his second missionary journey, he took along a man named Luke. And Luke was his traveling companion. According to Philemon verse 24, Luke was Paul's fellow worker. And according to Colossians 4.14, he was, according to Paul, and I quote, the beloved physician. And so that's how we know that the author of this book was a doctor. And you say, well, how do we know he was a Gentile? This is very interesting. I don't know if you knew this, um, but when you study and you look at Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, Colossians, four chapters in your Bibles, when you read chapter four, you find that as Paul's um, concluding his remarks, he gives a list of men who are circumcised Jews. And then he says these, basically I'm paraphrasing, these are the only circumcised Jews that served with me, served Jesus with me. And then after giving that list, he gives two or three other names, just a few verses later, and Luke, not in this list of circumcised Jews, but in the other two or three names, therefore we conclude that Luke was a Gentile. And so Luke was the only Gentile author of the New Testament. Think about this. Matthew was a Jew. Mark was a Jew. John was a Jew. Paul, most definitely, <laughs> was a Jew. Hey, how about this? The author of Hebrews. Hebrews, you think he was a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Jew. And then you got James, he's a Jew. Peter, he's a Jew. All of them in the New Testament, who wrote the New Testament, are Jews, except for one guy, and his name is Luke. And so when you combine the Gospel of Luke, and by the way, these are all introductory remarks, a brief introduction before we get into verse one. When you combine the Gospel of Luke, written by Luke, with the book of Acts, written by Luke, you find out that Luke wrote the most content in the New Testament. Now I know that Paul wrote most of the books of the New Testament, but what you need to know is that Luke, the Gentile, he wrote, the most words, the most pages in your New Testament. Isn't it interesting that God entrusted the most content of the New Testament to a Gentile? You know what that tells me? That tells me that our gospel, the new covenant, it's for the whole world. It's for all nations. It's for Jews and for Gentiles. And so the alternative title for this book is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The author is Luke, but when did he write it? Scholars believe Luke wrote this book either at the very, very end of the 50s, but most likely between AD 60 and AD 63. Now we believe that's the correct date. And the reason we believe that's the correct date is because of what Luke does not mention in his book, what he does not mention 
in these 28 chapters. For example, Luke does not mention Paul's second imprisonment. Okay, so if you're, how many of you guys have read the book of Acts? Let me see your hands if you have, that's great. Okay, and so you know, those of you who raised your hands, when you got to, ver- to chapter 28, the last chapter in the book, that Paul is in Rome, he's under house arrest by the Roman Empire, awaiting trial uh, for Caesar, and um, that's where the book ends. It just ends with him, people are coming to visit him while he's in prison, but he's sharing the gospel, but the, the book of Acts ends with Paul's first imprisonment. Nothing is said about his second imprisonment, which took place between AD 64 and AD 67. Again, look at the dates of when Luke wrote this, AD 60 to 63. Paul gets rearrested and thrown in prison by the Roman Empire, AD 64 to AD 67. We know from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, that Luke was with Paul in Rome while Paul was arrested the second time. Here's the question. Why didn't Luke include that in this book? Why isn't there in Acts chapter 29, uh, oh, Paul got rearrested and he's back in Rome and he's back in prison. The reason why apparently is because Luke finished the book of Acts before Paul got arrested again. You see why they, they date this book? AD 60 to AD 63. Luke also doesn't mention huge events like the burning of Rome in AD 64, which was blamed on the Christians. And you guys all know from history Nero and how he persecuted the Christians. Luke doesn't mention that in his book. Must have been written before. Luke doesn't mention the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, AD 70. uh, Secular and sacred historians all accept AD 70, the destruction of the Jewish temple, not in the book of Acts. Why? Because Luke wrote the book before that time. All right, so the alternative title is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The author is Dr. Luke. The time he wrote it, between AD 60 and AD 63. But what about the outline? The outline we get from Acts chapter one, verse eight. And so go ahead and jump ahead to our last verse that we're gonna cover later in the message. But verse eight, Jesus, speaking to the disciples, said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, here it is, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what happened. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, we see the spread of Christianity. And so it started in Jerusalem. And by the way, As we're gonna see here in the next month or so, these first seven chapters shows us a church that grew by leaps and bounds within the city of Jerusalem. We're gonna see a mega church straight from Acts chapter one, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Acts chapters one verse uh, through chapter seven. And you know, it kind of bothers me when some people have this overly critical spirit and they kind of look with skepticism on any church today that happens to be growing by leaps and bounds. And they immediately think, what's wrong with that church? And, and, and I agree, 
You know, uh, for some churches, they get real big because for whatever reason, the pastor's watering down the message. He's not teaching the whole counsel of God. He's not saying that Jesus is the only way to the Father. I, I get that. But, but here's an idea. Instead of being overly critical, why don't we just for a second think, well, maybe that church is getting so big because the Holy Spirit's moving among the people and where everything that's healthy naturally grows. Why can't we have that attitude? Let's be positive before we're negative, amen? amen. Can you help me out with that? Yeah. All right, can we do that? <laughs> Let's not be the church that looks down our noses at other churches and skeptical and think, oh, something's wrong here or there or here. No, maybe the Lord's moving. He moved in Jerusalem and it grew to tens of thousands of people. And then we see in chapters eight through 12, just like Jesus said in Acts 1-8, it went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And then, thank you, Apostle Paul, it went to the ends of the earth, at least to the earth that they knew, the known world, the Roman Empire, again, from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And notice after verse 20, I'm sorry, chapter 28, I have two Fs. Everybody knows what that means, right? In other words, chapters 13 through 28 and following. Why? Because the book of Acts never really is supposed to end. The Great Commission is not just for the first century believers. The Great Commission is for all generations, including our generation. What does that mean? That means that we are responsible to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so everybody in the count of three, if you really mean it, I want you to say, I'm responsible. We're at one, two, three. Amen, and so am I. So in 2019, man, let's make disciples together. And so after that brief introduction, we're ready to get into verse one. So right now, if you're looking at Acts chapter one, verse one, just say amen. amen. All right, so in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Notice the order there. Do and teach. You gotta live it before you talk about it. If you're not living it, please zip your lips and stop turning people off from Jesus. That was free. <laughs> In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That's the ascension. After he had given commands, that's, that includes the Great Commission, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so the phrase in the first book refers to Luke's gospel, which um, Luke had written to his friend Theophilus. We won't do it right now, but if you turn to Luke chapter one, read verses one through four, the introductory remarks to the gospel of Luke is Luke addressing his friend, the most excellent, Theophilus, he says most excellent, which tells us that Theophilus was a high-ranking Roman official. And so Luke writes the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes the book of Acts. By the way, he writes it to Theophilus, whose name, Theophilus, Theo means God, um, Philo means love. And so he's the lover of God. Theophilus, God lover. I like that name. So if any of you moms are pregnant and you're thinking about a name, 
There's a great name right there. Call him Theo. That's cool. I like Caleb too. I'm reading through the Old Testament for one of my classes and I keep, keep thinking, Caleb, Caleb, Caleb. And every time I see Caleb, I circle his name, circle his name, circle his name. And the reason I circle his name is because Caleb was a person who lived by faith, not by fear. And when 10 guys wanted to turn around and put their tails between their legs and run away from the promised land, it was Caleb and Joshua who said, what are you guys doing? We can take this land. Let's take God at his word. Let's step out in faith. Let's do this. That's Caleb. That's another great name. I also like the name Heath. Not because it's in the Bible, but because I grew up watching the Big Valley. Does anybody remember this? I'm aging myself, right? Heath, the youngest of three brothers, right? There was um, Jared. He was the oldest, and then Nick, and then there was Heath, Lee Majors. And I always thought the youngest brother was the coolest. And I'm, I'm the youngest of three brothers. And so I always like Heath. And so I've told my daughters, you know, you know, as you're having kids, think about these names. And they just laugh at me and it's like, whatever, Dad. All right. Verse three, it says that he, Jesus, presented himself alive, everybody say alive. alive. He's not dead, we serve a risen savior. Amen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them. You can't get any more evidence than seeing him standing there during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so we see from this verse that from the resurrection of Christ to the ascension of Christ, there's a period of 40 days. When I was growing up as a kid, I used to think the resurrection and the ascension were the same thing. And later on, when I started reading the Bible, I found out they're two separate events. And in the interim, there's a period of 40 days where Jesus appears in his resurrected body and disappears, appears and disappears. And he shows himself to many people. I'm gonna see how well you guys were listening last week. Who's the first person the resurrected Christ revealed himself to? Mary Magdalene, very good. A woman in that day and age when women were looked down upon and thought of as not as equal as men. And thank God Jesus came, he changed all that. And now we understand that both men and women are both created in the image of God, therefore both have the same exact intrinsic value. And so guys, women are not you know, inferior to us. God perished the thought. They're absolutely equal with us, 100%. And so Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, that's Mark 16, verse nine, and then he appeared to the men, various occasions, various disciples, including one appearance to over 500 brothers at one time, that's 1 Corinthians 15, six. And so one of the strongest evidences, as I said, uh, last week or the week before, one of the strongest evidences that we have that Jesus is alive are hundreds of eyewitnesses. I saw Jesus alive after he was dead. And therefore, the resurrection is not a myth. It is a fact of history. Amen. Verse four, 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Okay, so get the picture, the resurrected Christ. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He appears to his disciples. He tells them, don't leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And if you don't mind marking in your Bibles, please circle the word Father. To wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from, please circle the word me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the, please circle the words, Holy Spirit. Not many days from now, in fact, 10 days from now. And so I had you uh, circle the words Father, Son, and Spirit to show you once again from the pages of Scripture the triunity of our God. Ladies and gentlemen, man, you got to get this. We believe in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, says the Shema from Deuteronomy, I believe, chapter six, verse four. God is one. But through the progressive revelation of the scriptures, he reveals himself in three persons. We see in the New Testament the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. And somebody says, that doesn't make sense to me, explain it. I'm not gonna try to explain it because God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, and you and I have little tiny brains like this big. And so we just have to accept it by faith. And then when we get there, he'll reveal the rest to us. <laughs> And please don't try to explain people and get into arguments, well, God is like an egg. <laughs> you know, you have the outer part of the egg, the shell, and then you have the white part, and then in the middle, there's that little yellow yolk, and I understand, you know, you're just trying to help God. Hey, God doesn't need help. Amen. All right, that illustration is not good. It breaks down. The best illustration you can come up with if you have to use an illustration is the triangle. That's a good illustration. One triangle, three sides. And the reason I like that, that, that illustration of the Trinity is because if you take away one side, it ceases to be a triangle. But the thing is, the left side of the triangle is not the right side of the triangle, is not the bottom part of the triangle. And though God is one, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, do you follow what I'm saying here? Okay, so one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said to his disciples, wait for the Father's promise. Now what was the Father's promise? Let's, let's look at it again in verse five. He says, for John baptized with water, here it is, but you, will be baptized, immersed, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So if you're taking notes, the promise of the Father, very simple, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Some call him the forgotten member of the Trinity. It's him. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, hey guys, I want you to wait for the Father's promise and what is that? 
That is when you're gonna be baptized or immersed with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so John baptized or immersed people. If you're with me, say amen here. Amen. Don't, don't miss this. John the Baptist baptized, immersed people in water. You guys, but you guys, you're gonna be baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. That's exciting. We don't have to do this life alone. Amen. Now earlier, Jesus promised this to his disciples in the Gospel of John. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, I, Jesus, the Son, will ask the Father, and he will give you another what? Helper, there's the Holy Spirit, there's the Trinity again through the progressive revelation of scriptures. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you, how long? Forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. He's talking to followers of Jesus. The world doesn't know him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let me just stop right there. If you're here today and, and you don't know the Holy Spirit, it's because you're part of the world. Do you see this? If you're here this morning sitting or watching through Facebook Live and you don't know the Holy Spirit, it's because you're still part of the world. But if you choose to be a follower of Jesus, you know him. How many of you know him? Right? You know him. For he dwells with you. And here's the revolutionary, mind-blowing, crazy, amazing part. And will be what? In you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so what you need to know that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God was active and he would, and I'm reading through it now, he would like rush upon Samson. And Samson would go out and you know, kill those Philistines. And then he would rush upon Saul. And Saul would go out and do whatever God wanted Saul to do. And he would rush upon Elijah. And Elijah would do whatever. But what you need to know is that in the Old Testament, and the only exception to this is John the Baptist, who was a prophet, the last of the Old Covenant prophets. But listen, by and large, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's work among those Old Testament saints was only temporary. Say the word temporary. All right, but right now, under the New Covenant, not only will the Holy Spirit be with us, Jesus promised he will be in us. First Corinthians, this is the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. This makes all the difference in the world. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19, Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That language does not exist in the Old Testament. Their bodies were not the temple of the Holy Spirit. But beautiful, beautiful thing, if you're a born again Christian, your body is the temple of God. I like what Chuck Swindoll had to say about this. The announcement that the Spirit of God would indwell, everybody say indwell. That's the difference right there between the old and the new. The announcement that the Spirit of God would indwell each believer seemed unthinkable 
and unbelievable extravagance the followers of Jesus could barely comprehend. And yet it was true. And guess what? He came just like the Father promised. Not just with him, in him. And so I remember when I was 17 years old, and I remember for about a year, I remember something was out here. I couldn't explain it, I was 17. I had no idea what was going on. But I was cognizant in my teenage mind, there's something out here. And I grew up in the church. I went to church every week of my life. But I didn't have a relationship. Please say the word relationship. relationship. I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And one day, I understood that I'm gonna go to heaven not because I'm such a good person and I can work my way there. I finally got it in my teenage mind, 17 years old, that Jesus paid it all, paid in full. I trusted him and him alone. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And guess what? Whatever was out here came in here. And the Spirit of God was not just with me, he was in me. And it made all the difference in the world. I had been doing some things, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old that I had no business doing. And yet I was doing it because I was chained up in sin. And guess what? When Jesus came in, the chains were broken and I was set free. I didn't become perfect overnight, but all of a sudden I had a supernatural power to walk in victory. Yes, even as a 17 year old. Because why? You're so good? No, because he's so good and his power can change you. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the new covenant. This is the New Testament. This is what you, God wants you to experience. Not a religion, a relationship with him. Some of you may be here today and you're thinking, you feel like an orphan. You feel like you've been abandoned. You feel like you're all alone. Listen to the words of Jesus. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You need to take God at his word. You need to expect God to come to you and not just with you, but in you. And you turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And I'm not saying you say a little poem after a pastor at the end of a service. I'm saying you turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And guess what? Jesus Christ's spirit comes inside of you. And he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he gives you the power to follow him. And so you don't have to go through life alone. The Lord wants to be with you and he wants to be in you. And one of my favorite titles of the Holy Spirit is he's the comforter. How many of you are thankful for the comforter? Right? I am. I have no, no embarrassment at all to clap with you and say, thank God for the comforter. Right? Because when all hell's breaking loose, when the bottom falls out and you're going through a trial or a storm, guess what? Your friend may walk out on you, but Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And he's right here. And he's not going anywhere. He's with you. You don't have to do life alone. You don't have to walk by yourself. Listen, the world has yet to see what God can do through one man or woman who's fully devoted to Jesus Christ. That's what D.L. Moody said. And so if you will become fully devoted to Jesus Christ, listen, this is not just talk. This is not just theory. This is experiential. 
He will come inside of you. He'll give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. He'll give you a joy unspeakable and full of glory. And you'll know God's with me and he's in me. And I am a recipient of the new covenant. And this is good news. This is the best news there could ever be. And so here's the thing. You know, people get all shook up because they go through a hard time and people are talking about them and they're saying nasty things about them and they're gossiping about them behind your back. And then God forbid the worst thing of all, you get unfriended on Facebook. (laughs) Well, guess what? Jesus is your best friend. He won't leave you, he's with you. And don't you dare get on Facebook and just tear that person up. It's not right. Let them say whatever they wanna say. Jesus Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. And he's your, friend, your best friend and all's good with the world, amen? amen? So when Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit being poured out, these Jewish men who knew the Old Testament, their minds immediately went, went to the prophet Joel. Now, you don't have to turn to Joel because we're gonna cover this portion of scripture when we get to Peter's amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost in two weeks. But their minds, you need to know, when he's talking about the pouring out of the Spirit, they went to the book of Job. The prophet Job in the Old Testament said that God in the last days, everybody say last days. In the last days, God will pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. And so the disciples thought, Well, if Jesus is about to pour out his spirit, that means we're in the last days, and that means the kingdom is about to come. Woohoo, yes! And that leads to verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, Lord, you're about to pour out your spirit. Does that mean that the kingdom is about to be restored to Israel? Does that mean that you're gonna defeat the Romans? You're gonna conquer your enemies and you're gonna finally sit on David's throne in Jerusalem as prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter seven? Is that what you're gonna do? And so it's interesting that they believed in a literal kingdom. I remember when my, when my three daughters were much, much younger, uh, many years ago, I was telling them about the second coming of Jesus and girls, he's gonna come to Jerusalem. And he's gonna reign over the whole world. And I never forget my middle daughter, Mandy, um, 12 years old at the time, with all seriousness, she goes, I'm moving to Jerusalem. <laughs> and I thought that was cool. You know why? She took me literally. Did you notice that Jesus did not correct the disciples' literal view of the coming kingdom? Did you notice that? He didn't say, guys, don't you know I'm done with Israel? They said, Lord, are you gonna restore the kingdom to Israel right now? And Jesus did not say, guys, don't you know I'm done with Israel? They rejected me. And so now all the promises that God made in your scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, 
in the last days to restore the kingdom of Israel. Guys, you need to know all those prophecies and promises, they're going to be now, I've changed it, fulfilled spiritually in the church. And so now when you're reading through your Old Testament, um, every time you see a last days passage and you see the, the word Israel, just know uh, I'm not really talking about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm talking about the, the, the spiritual Israel, the new Israel. I'm talking about the church. And so you can go ahead and take your pen and just cross out Israel and, and write the word church there. Did you notice Jesus did not do that? Jesus did not say, guys, I'm getting ready to ascend to the right hand of my father. And did you know that that is David's throne? David's throne is not on earth. David's throne's up in heaven. The kingdom is right now. I'm sitting on David's throne. And you know, John later on in his book is gonna write about a thousand year reign of Christ. You need to just take that in an allegorical way, a spiritual way. There's not gonna be a literal thousand year reign of Christ sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem, literally. No, you spiritualize all those verses and, and you, you kind of make them uh, say something different. It's, it's what God's doing right now in the church age. Did you notice he didn't say that? Now, some of you are looking at me like, what is he talking about? <laughs> what I'm talking about is what many Christian denominations teach their people. It's called amillennialism, and it's not right. And you know why it's not right? Ah, in Latin means no, no literal thousand year reign of Christ. And so Jesus, he's not gonna come back and sit on David's throne on the earth over there in Jerusalem, literally. The kingdom's now, okay? So, and so you, know what, um, you know what's wrong with that position? It's because they adhere to, I'm going a little deeper, but I'll explain it. They adhere to what's called a dual hermeneutic. The word hermeneutics means Bible interpretation. And so they're not a consistent hermeneutic, it's dual. In other words, all the prophecies about Jesus' first coming, you tell me, all the prophecies about Jesus' first coming in the Old Testament, there's many of them, were they fulfilled literally or allegorically? You tell me. Literally. literally. He really was born of a virgin, right? He really um, did have a ministry in Galilee. Um, he really did, by his wounds, we are healed. Uh, they really did pierce his hands and feet. You see what I'm saying? And so over and over and over, I could go all day long, he really did rise from the dead. Okay, all those prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled literally in Jesus' first coming. But now, all of a sudden, many Christians today, they wanna take all the prophecies that have been unfulfilled concerning his second coming, and now they don't wanna interpret those literally, they wanna interpret those allegorically and spiritually and make statements like, God, you know, all the promises for Israel, it's not really for Israel, we're Israel. It's for the church. Ah, millennialism. It's not right. And so if you wanna go deeper in the subject, if you're interested in end times, you can go to gotquestions.org and you can type in the word ah, millennial and you can read all about it, you know, later on after the sermon and, and, and educate yourself what many Christian denominations teach their people today. But ladies and gentlemen, Jesus did not say that. He did not correct their literal view of the kingdom. 
Jesus didn't say that um, it wasn't a little kingdom because here's why. How many of you know that Jesus one day will come back and he will fulfill all his promises to Israel and he'll establish his kingdom on the earth? Absolutely. Listen, 100%. You know why? Because God's a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. How many of you heard of the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis 12, 15, and 17. You can go ahead and read it later. That's an unconditional covenant. How many of you have heard of the Davidic covenant? 2 Samuel chapter seven. That's an unconditional covenant. And so Jesus will one day restore the kingdom to Israel. Why do you think in May of 1948, all of a sudden, we as a world declare that the Jews are back in their land, it's a legitimate state of Israel. Why did that happen? In fulfillment of prophecy, that's why it happened. Listen, you, you do the research. No other nation, no other people in the history of the world ever were outside of their land for 1,800 years and then miraculously came back to their land. But it happened. Why? The Bible says it's gonna happen. And guess what? Now the stage is set. Israel, the Jews are back in their land. The stage is set for a literal second coming. And when Jesus comes back, he will put his feet down on the Mount of Olives, literally. And he will rule as the son of David in fulfillment of all the prophecies, literally. What I'm, what I'm espousing to you today is called premillennialism, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you get nonsense. Let's just take the Bible at its face value. Let's just take the Bible at its face value. Jesus did not correct them. Amen or oh me, but we gotta move on. Um, verse seven. All right, and so he said to them, it is not, okay, so how does he respond? Are you gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Right. Okay, and so let's stop writing books about when the rapture's gonna happen. That was for free. All right, verse eight. But here's where your focus should be. And by the way, we don't know when the rapture's gonna happen. I have no idea when the rapture's gonna happen. And I'm not gonna set dates. You know, if I really thought the rapture was gonna happen next year, why would we build a school? But we don't know. So guess what? We're gonna make disciples of as, as many little kids as we can because he may postpone and he may come back later on down the road. And, and we gotta keep reaching the generation we're in. Where should our focus be? On what day is the rapture? No, our focus should be right here in verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. <clears throat> now the Greek word for power is a lot like our English word dynamite. All right, so the transliteration of the Greek word power is dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. All right, so how in the world, I wanna ask you to stay with me all the way in here, okay? But how in the world does a handful of disciples take the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Rome and make hundreds of thousands of disciples in 30 years? How in the world does this happen? It happens because, or it happened because they had dynamite power. 
Oh man, churches are so dead today. Us four no more. Spirit of God's nowhere to be found. No power. They had power and they had results. Stacy and I love the mountains. We try to get up there as much as we can with our busy schedules. But one of the things that amazes me about the mountains are those roads through the mountains. And so I love going up there whenever I can. And I'm always reminded that a lot of those mountain roads were made possible by dynamite back in the day. And so if it wasn't for the power of dynamite, many of the most beautiful places in the world would be virtually inaccessible by us unless we wanna go for an eight hour hike up and down a mountain. So now, because humans have blasted off the sides of mountains, blasted through mountains, making tunnels, guess what? We're able to reach some of the most beautiful scenes that we could ever see in the world. What are you trying to say, Pastor? What I'm trying to say is that without the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit in your life, there are beautiful things that God wants you to see, but you'll never see them. There's amazing goals that he wants you to attain and you'll never attain them. You know why? Because you don't have the power, the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit in your life. But if you will become fully devoted to Jesus Christ and you will be filled to overflowing with his spirit, guess what? You'll see those beautiful places just like you drive on a road to some of those places in the mountains and you'll attain those goals because it's the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you guys? So what is one of the greatest goals that we could ever attain to? It's in verse eight. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit, please say Holy Spirit, has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And so here's your next point. Only the Holy Spirit can enable you to reach the goal of being an effective witness of Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. So what's one of the greatest goals that we could ever attain in our lives? Being an effective witness of Christ. How do you get there? Is it because you have a great skill set and you got talent coming out of your ears and you got the best education money can buy and you got years of experience and not only that, you have this dynamic personality. You walk into a room and it just lights up. Well, guess what? You can have all those things and still not be an effective witness of Jesus Christ. There's only one thing and he's not a thing, he's a person. There's only one person who can help you achieve the goal of being an effective witness of Christ, and that is the Holy Spirit of God, the forgotten member of the Trinity. And may he not be forgotten in this church. I'm gonna close with this story, but one of the greatest examples that we have of an effective witness of Christ is the evangelist D.L. Moody. How many of you guys have heard of D.L. Moody? Let me see your hands. Yeah, so probably 60%. It's amazing the impact this guy has still today. And so D.L. Moody, when he was a young preacher, if you don't, if you don't know who, he's talk, who I'm talking about, uh, he was a 19th century evangelist used by God in amazing ways in America and in England, Moody Bible Institute, Moody Memorial Church, etc. And so when he was a young preacher, he was um, preaching in Chicago's Farwell Hall. And... 
two elderly ladies used to come up to him after the services. And they would look at him and they would say, young man, we're praying for you. And he'd get a little awkward and embarrassed. And he's like, why? Why don't you pray for the people? And they said, because you need power. And D.L. Moody later on wrote down his thoughts. When they said, you need power, young man, his thoughts, and I quote, I need power. I have the largest congregation in Chicago. That's what he was thinking. Be careful. You need power. And he was offended. I need power. But then, you know, how many of you guys know the Lord has a way of getting our attention? And so he'd agreed to start praying with these women, these elderly women. And after their times of prayer, he became overwhelmed with the fact that he needed power in his ministry. So he started to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. And one day, God answered his prayer. And in his biography, in his own words, this is how he described it. He said, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it, I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And that's exactly what some of you guys need today. God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I didn't present any new truths and yet hundreds were converted. And so God continued to use D.L. Moody not just to preach to hundreds, but to tens of thousands, multiplied thousands of people, both in America and England, and now, well over 100 years after his death, he's impacted millions of people in both America, Europe, and, and around the world. And so he's the one who said, the world has yet to see what God can do through one person who's fully devoted to him. And someone said that to him one day and he said, I'll be that man. And so guess what? When you become fully devoted to Christ and continually filled with his Holy Spirit, God shows up. Because how many of you know it's not by our might or power, but by his spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so maybe you're here today and you think, you know, I can't really relate to this, pastor. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not called to full-time ministry. But let me just say this, part of the bad English, the power of the Spirit is for all y'all. You wanna see our city change? It's for all y'all. Not a religion, not go to church a couple times a month, do your duty and check your box. It's for all y'all and for me. And so, the question is, are you full of the Holy Spirit of God? Why? Because that's what your spouse needs and your kids. How many, how many, how many of you know this all starts at home? If you're, if you, if, if, if you're not impacting your home, then, then you're fake. Acting all religious outside your home, but in your home you're treating your wife like she's garbage and yelling at your kids. You're, you're a hypocrite. You're fake. It's time to repent. Yes, I used the word, the R word. You need to repent. 
Ask God to forgive you and ask him to fill you so that you can love your spouse and love your kids. And the only way you're gonna do that is when you're filled overflowing with the spirit of God and your friends and your coworkers and everyone. We all need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the spirit to come inside of us. How does that happen? That happens by turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. And then he comes in. And we need the ongoing power of God to live for him and follow him. How does that happen? We ask to be refilled with the Spirit. And some of you say, you know, where's that in the Bible? Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk with wine. A lot of Christians have no problem doing that. Every weekend. Don't get drunk with wine wherein is excess. But continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you watch what God does in your life. You watch what he does in your family, in your marriage. Please God, in this church and potentially throughout our city. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God.